at 53. I don't know if anybody's ever heard the phrase drop the mic. That's when someone says something that needs no follow-up and they just drop it and walk away. Well, this passage has this drop the mic scenario. All you really need to do is read it. It stands alone as so glorious that it's one of the most quoted in the New Testament. And it's like, I really don't even need to say anything. It's just read it, drop it, and walk away. It says it on its own. So in one sense, there's a sense that if you try to preach on a passage that's so glorious in and of itself, it's almost like you could mess it up. Well, I'm not worried about that because I trust God's word more than my abilities. So I trust his spirit here. And we just need to know that as we look into this beautiful passage, that God is wanting us to see how wonderful his son is. And our prayer is that we would grow to adore him in ways that we haven't before. And that's only a work he can do. My words can't be so magical that all of a sudden your heart starts having affections. This is his word. He's going to do that work and I'm going to trust him for it. So what I want to do is I want to read a few verses. Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5. But we will be going from Isaiah 52 verse uh, 13 all the way through the end of chapter 53. I'm just going to dive into these two verses, read them, pray And then we'll spend some time together learning about God, but more importantly, applying it to our hearts and living it in our lives. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. The Word of God says this, Surely He, the He in that sentence is the suffering servant we've been learning about. We know Him to be Jesus Christ, who gave His life for sinners and was raised from the dead on the third day. And it says this, Mind you, 700 years before any of this happened. Surely He has borne our griefs or diseases, it could even be rendered, and carried our sorrows and our pains. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his stripes, lashes, wounds, we are healed. Let's pray. Oh God, we have sung it. And I ask that it would be a reality that you would come, oh come, Emmanuel. God with us. There is a rock-solid confidence that we have who are in Christ, that you are here in this moment with us. And I ask God that you would cause us to adore your Son. You would cause us to revel in His glory to adore His sacrifice, to see His love. May we be blown away today, I pray, with Your greatness, O God, and Your love for us. Would You please prevent us and protect us from being indifferent in this moment, from being lazy, from being unmoved or unaffected. With the grip of the cross, would You grip our hearts and cause joy and affection and emotion and love for you to abound. Would you please do what only you can do 
turn us away from life debilitating and destroying sin and cause us to give our lives wholly, unashamedly, fully, not in part, to you. Because you are worthy and you are greatly to be praised. We want you to get the glory in this moment, please. May you increase and may everyone else decrease. May you alone get the fame that you are deserved and due on this day. We ask for your help now in Christ's name. Amen. There's a commercial out there uh, put on by St. Jude's Hospital. And uh, spending, having spent some time in uh, the Duke Cancer Ward, there is a special spot in my heart for those who are struggling with these life-altering diseases, especially struggling with cancer-related type diseases. And this commercial has two little girls completely bald. And as you watch this commercial, they begin to share that when St. Jude first started, only 20% of those who had cancer survived. And they were asking people to give for research and for doctors and for all the things that are going on now because they are up to 80% survival rate for those who struggle with cancer. Just thought it was remarkable. And we pray for more. And yet, having spent some time on that fourth floor in Duke Hospital and you see these children with no hair You see how weak and frail they are. You see their families investing in them. And can you imagine that word? After all the fatigue, after all the chemo, after all the throwing up, after all the agony, and that doctor comes to them and tells that parent, your child is cancer free. Child is free. The feeling and the emotion, the celebration, the sense that the journey was so hard but yet so worth it. The thanksgiving erupts. There's this new spot in your heart for these doctors and nurses. There is just this joy that comes over because what was once fully diseased has now been healed. And the picture that is painted for us in the book of Isaiah is that there is one healer for the disease that plagues every person in this world, the disease of the human heart, the disease of sin, and he wants everyone to acknowledge their disease-ridden state and to turn to him as healer and experience the joy that those parents have experienced when they're told your child has been healed. The experience of a healer doing his work of healing. And so today, there are four things that we want to look at in the book of Isaiah. And what's beautiful and unique about this passage is that it ebbs and flows. It moves from our broken, disease-ridden state and it flows into God's healing, miraculous, glorious power. And so what this passage wants us to see is that we are diseased, but that Jesus Christ is the healer. I get that language from the verses that I read to you. Verse 5, 
He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Healed. He says earlier, if you look at verse 4, he has surely borne our griefs. That literally can be translated, he took upon him our diseases. And the same in chapter 53, verse 3, when it says, He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with many diseases. We'll explain what that means, but I'm not importing this concept of disease and healing. It's right here in the text. And so what these four points are going to highlight is our diseased nature and God's amazing power to heal. Let's look at the four points. Number one, disease detected. It's come onto the radar screen, and yet we also have the healer's promise. Number two, the disease is described, yet the healer is disfigured. Interesting. Number three is the cure for this disease comes through wounds, through slaying. And so what we see is the healer's sacrifice. And number four, the healing begins to take effect, and you begin to see the healer's glory. Now, let's take the first one. Disease detected, healer's promise. We've got to get on the on-ramp here. We've all slept since the last time we were in Isaiah 52. Our minds are mush, so let's kind of dive back into the context of where we are. Some of you, you haven't been with us in the series, so this will be helpful for you as well. The people of Israel, they could get one word over their lives, and that is rejection. They have rejected God. And God in His great grace kept pursuing and pursuing and pursuing them. He delivered them from Egypt way back in the day when they were slaves and they were oppressed. And it even says in Isaiah 52 that they needed to have remembered Egypt because God delivered them in miraculous ways, splitting the, the Red Sea and letting them walk across millions of them on dry ground. He did that so that they would worship Him and not reject Him. And yet, their story is still a story of rejection. The kingdom rejected God so much that Israel was split apart. There was like a civil war. They go in two separate directions, and you have the north and the south. The north then, because of their constant rejection, is exiled to the Assyrians. And you read about them in Isaiah 52. Rejection. They have rejected God, and there's consequence for that. And then the southern kingdom, the people of Judea, they rejected God, and they are exiled to the Babylonians. And this is what we read. They have been exiled for years and for years and for years. And now God promises. He has sent a king, King Cyrus of Persia, and he has put down all the oppressors. And he is now saying, Israel, you should go back to your homeland and rebuild your city. But what God begins to say is that this King Cyrus is a king that's in my hands. He is doing my bidding. When Babylon won you over and took you into exile, that was a punishment from my hand. When Cyrus comes in and he delivers you, that is a gift from my hand. And now you must see your life as a drama. Israel, you must see your life as a play unfolding to describe with your physical body what's really going on in your hearts. 
You must depart from your captors, the Babylonians, and you must run into my arms and walk with me to this new city that I will provide for you, and in faith you must rebuild it. And Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, is meaning to portray this leaving of Babylon, fleeing the captors, following God as a picture of what all of our hearts are supposed to do. It's meant to portray a spiritual journey. And this is where he says in verse 11 of chapter 52, Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves. He's saying leave Babylon, but he's saying more than that. He's saying leave sin behind. Stop rejecting me and walk with me. Because here's what's beautiful. Listen to what he says in verse 12. The lead in to where we're going today. For you shall not go out in haste. You don't need to go out in panic. And you will not go in flight. You don't need to be filled with anxiety. Why? Because the Lord will go before you. And the God of Israel will be your rear guard. He'll be in front of you. He'll be behind you. He's already said in Isaiah 41.10, He said, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He says, I am with you. Don't be afraid any longer, but don't stay in your captivity. And the message is just screaming to us as the reader, don't stay in your sin. And now he's saying, you've got to see, I will be with you, but you are diseased. And you've got to purify yourselves. You've got to leave this, not just physical captivity, you've got to leave the spiritual captivity that you're in, and you've got to stop rejecting me, and I will be there for you. You walk with me. Trust me. And so what our entire passage today is meant to portray is who is the one that is going to walk with you? Who's the one that will be your rear guard? Who's the one that will go before you? He just paints a picture of a person for a chapter and a half so that you would have confidence that when you trust in Him, you will never be alone again. No matter what earthly person leaves you, no matter what betrayal comes your way, you will never be alone again if you are trusting in Christ. If you're His child, He will never abandon you. And so He labors for a chapter and a half to say, this is the one who's with you. So look at verse 13. Behold, look, open the eyes, see. That's what he's saying. My servant will act wisely. You might have a footnote. It says, will prosper. This is a, this is a sense that here's the one who's going to walk with you. And he will succeed. He will prosper. He will be high and lifted up. He will be exalted. You can take it to the bank. It will happen. 
he will be exalted. I don't know if you've ever seen the show Shark Tank. It's where these guys who have people that have more money than they know what to do with, and they sit here on this panel, and they look at all of these investors, these people with creative ideas, and they're looking for people to invest in their product in order that they might make it. You know, they might make more money and might prosper. As I watch that show, you know, you can just see a lot of just really bad ideas. <laughs> but also you can, you can see in there that these people with this money, that they have this money in part because they're trying, they're pretty wise with their money and, and they begin to see what patterns lead to prosperity and what don't lead to prosperity. But here's the problem. Even though they've invested hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars over the years in these different companies, not everything that they've invested in has prospered. Not even the richest of our world, the most business tycoons, can guarantee 100% prospering. But right here, God says, my plan will guaranteed prosper. Jesus will prosper. He will succeed. He will advance. And we're not talking about millions. We are talking about He will accomplish what He has been sent to do. But what's shocking is it happens in a very unconventional, very surprising way. Look at it. Verse 14. As many were astonished at you, Talking about the servant. As many were astonished or shocked or startled or dismayed. And then he kind of takes a parenthesis and describes the you. It's this servant that he's already mentioned in verse 13. It says, His appearance was so marred, so disfigured, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He was so distorted, so disfigured, he barely looked like a human. He was grotesquely treated. And so much so that it caused the people who were looking at him to be kind of shocked and astonished. Have you seen that before? When someone is so hurt, or so sick, or so diseased, that sometimes it's even hard to look at them. It's shocking. And you have this kind of disposition of, I don't know if I can bear it. This is our Savior. The prospering was not going to come through political power and through strength. It was going to come through weakness and through suffering, through disfiguring, through death. But here is what is remarkable. It is through the disfigurement. It even says in chapter 52, verse 2, if you look at 53, verse 2, look at it. He had no former majesty that we should look at Him. No beauty that we should desire Him. What was attracting these people was not His radiant beauty. It was not that He was on the cover of People magazine. It was not that He was the one that was the best looking. People were shocked and drawn into Him by something greater than looks. 
And oh, may that frame what we give our lives to. Something greater than image drew these people towards him. They were astonished and shocked, and yet they looked at him, and it was through his sufferings that verse 15 happens. And he will sprinkle or startle the many nations, and the kings shall shut their mouths. They'll be so shocked at what they see. Their mouths, these who have all power, will be sh- their mouths will be shut because of him. For that which they have not been told, now they see it for the first time. And that which they have not heard, they now f- understand for the first time. When they see the slaughtered, wounded, crucified Savior, the jaw drops, the mouth shuts. And life is put into perspective. It is this very verse that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 15. He states in Romans chapter 15 that it is this very promise that drives him to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. The fact that God promises here through His Son and His Son's weakness and death He will accomplish the salvation of many to the ends of the earth. It was that promise that sent Paul going to the nations, even through suffering, even though it meant that he might lose his life. Oh, that we might live that way, that we would hang our entire lives, all of our purpose, all of our resources, all of our thoughts, everything that we are upon words. The words of the living God framed his mission. And he says, that's why I go. We go, we send, we give, we spend our time, we pray because God promises it will happen and it'll happen. But just like through Jesus, it happened through suffering. We better believe that it will not happen through a bed of roses unless we're talking about the thorns on those roses. It'll happen through suffering from His people. That this great healing work through the death of His Son, that message of healing must be taken. And so Paul banked everything, his whole missionary endeavor upon these verses that God will sprinkle. Um, This is an image used in the Old Testament of, of washing and cleansing ceremonial purifying and making holy and washing clean. That's what God's going to do to the nations through this one who has suffered. And so the promise, the promise over and over is that this Christ, it is Him through His death and all that will be with you. And the irony of ironies is that it doesn't come by Him displaying His strength but by him displaying his weakness. Through refusing his political power that he rightly had, he persuaded in a more powerful way through his death. God is getting glory here in this passage already. Through death comes life. Through suffering comes the defeat of Satan. Through disfigurement comes righteousness for God's people. This is the guy This is the guy that's with you. The King of kings and Lord of lords. And now, 
Not only is the disease detected, it's seen. And not only does the healer promise that this suffering servant will be with you wherever you go, the disease is now described. And the healer is disfigured. He will be with you wherever you go. Look at Isaiah 53. This is the second point. Disease described, healer disfigured. Isaiah 53, 1-3. We have here, it says, Who has believed what they have heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What is now beginning to be described is the disease of the people. As I said, the people of Israel, they could have their whole life summarized by one word, rejected. They rejected God. And this verse is the very verse that the gospel author John picks up on to talk about the rejection of Israel. And it says, who has believed what they have heard from us and to whom has the Lord been revealed? God has been shown to the people of Israel and yet they did not believe. This begins to describe their disease. God makes Himself known to the people and they say, no thank you. I'm sufficient on my own, thank you. I'll call you when I really need something. This is the banner of rejection over the people of Israel. And this begins to describe the disease. There are people who have rejected God. Where do I get that? Look at verse 3 of Isaiah 53. These people who are to be the people of God, they despised this servant. They despised Jesus, we can safely say. And he was rejected by men or forsaken by men. It means the back was turned. I don't need you, thanks. Stay away, thanks. I can handle this on my own, thanks. We're not talking about just... Casual platitudes where you kind of, you know how you treat some people. Oh, hey. And then behind the back, you talk about them. Or in, their, in your heart, you're like, ooh, I don't like. This is outright to the face. I don't like you. And I'm rejecting you. And I'm turning away from you. You're suffering well. I hope that goes well for you. I'm going this way. It's rejection. It's despising. And he says he was a man of many pains and sorrows and he was acquainted with many diseases and it goes on to describe our disease as he was one from whom men hide their faces they would not even look his way he was despised and we esteemed him not Do you know what esteem means it means to prize to value to love to treasure we know what that is at Christmas time, we know what it is to crave and to long and to want things and to prize things, whether it's relationships or whether it's gifts under a tree or whether it's gadget, whatever it is, we know how to prize things. And here, the disease that is plaguing the people of Israel are they are not prizing Jesus. They don't esteem Him. They don't treasure Him. This author is really laboring that we would squirm a little 
over our own disease. The disease of our human heart. So many of us want to neuter our rebellion. It's not that bad. My sin is not as bad as somebody else's sin, we might say. But this passage makes us squirm. It makes us uneasy because of the description of us. I esteemed Him not. I despised Him. I forsook Him. I rejected Him. That's on me. Have you ever watched these movies where, and I'm not going to list any certain movie, but this theme is in a lot of movies. I try not to list movies sometimes because you might think endorsing is happening and then you go and like, I can't believe he watched that. You know, that's, a, that's an issue of liberty and so we're not going to draw a line there. So, have you ever seen these movies where you've grown to love the hero? You've, they've set it up to where you really start to like this main character. And then, music changes, foreshadowing, the villain, so to speak, comes along. And time after time again, you begin to be incited with anger at how they are treating this one that you've grown to like in the movie. I can't believe they would treat them that way. How could they stoop so low? How are they getting by with this? And you're just like, they are horrible people. They are rotten. I can't believe that. You might have other words you want to say for them. You just, anger wells up. You just, if, a, if it's a good movie and it captures you, you grow to hate this villain. And all of a sudden, now what Isaiah says to us is, you're the villain. That is me. You're the one that goes against the hero. You're the one that thinks you get by with the constant mocking of our Savior. You're the one that constantly rejects when you think it's behind closed doors and nobody looks. You're the one that murders. That is us. We are diseased to the core. There is not one ounce of us that isn't gripped by the perils of sin until Jesus comes on the scene. Disease destroys. The sin that is being addressed here in this minute is the disease of sin. Just walk with me through what disease does. What does disease do? Disease destroys strength, right? It makes you weak. Disease distorts what should be. It sh you should be functioning a certain way and you're not. And then you try to learn a new normal with this disease, sometimes even stopping to fight the disease. The distortion still goes on. The aim of the disease is to destroy and to defile. Charles Spurgeon says, the disease of sin breaks our equilibrium. It causes us to stumble and lose balance. You don't have your wherewithal anymore. It causes pain in some areas and it deadens you in others. Some sins are covert and deep within. You don't think anybody sees, but other sins, they are so gross that they're as visible as the old disease of leprosy. Leprosy. 
They're out in front of everyone to see. And left untreated, the disease grows with a vengeance and it will prove fatal. This is our sin. It is not passive. Satan is not just kind of hanging out. He is aggressively trying to devour your faith. And friends, there is one remedy. One remedy. There are many believers in this room, many who have treasured Jesus Christ, and you have found this healing that we're going to go on to describe. Some of you believers in this room, you struggle because how I'm talking, this is your self-talk all the time. I am rotten. I am horrible. I am no good. It's self-condemnation. Friends, this is not what this passage is drawing you to. It's actually the opposite. This passage is meant to draw you out of self-condemnation by looking to the remedy. He wants the diseased person not to act as if they're not diseased, but to spend more time looking at the one who by his wounds healed our diseases. But there are others in this room, believers or people that aren't following Jesus, that you don't struggle with self-condemnation, you struggle with self-righteousness. You don't believe you're that bad. And you're really convinced someone really close to you is really bad. And what's interesting, sometimes self-righteousness, it has a sense that you don't believe anything is wrong with you, but there are other times when you're so insecure, you're really aware of how wrong things are with you. And so you try to hone in on what you do well, even if it's small, and you elevate yourself, and then you put others down to make sure you stay high enough so that the guilt goes away. It's called making yourself righteous by making sure everybody else is not righteous in your eyes. That's not the remedy. That actually is only part of the disease. You get sicker when you try that approach. Because you'll never be able to perform this high all the time. You get weak and you fall. Somebody is going to do better than you. It will happen in every area of your life. And God says the remedy is singular. There is a singular surgery that must happen on the human heart. And it is not that you must show yourself to be better than your neighbor. It is not your own performance that will remedy your guilt problem and your insecurity. The only thing that will remedy your problem is the blood of Jesus Christ. It is by His wounds that we are healed. There is only one remedy. The cure for our disease is through wounds. That's the third point. 
through the healer's sacrifice. And so what do we see? What do we see? What is God's response to our disease-ridden state? It's not only Israel who should get the banner of rejection. We too have rejected God. And this is where I get that in verse 6 of this passage. It's not just Israel, but it's all. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look at verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. That's law breaking. There was a line here and we cross it. He was crushed for our iniquities. It's the impurities. It's the idolatries of the human heart. And it's only with his stripes that we sheep who have turned away, it's only with his stripes that we are healed. What is God's treatment plan? What is the heavenly medicine for our disease? It is the wounds of Jesus. And so we must be really clear to let nothing else enter in as the remedy to our disease. What might we let enter in as the remedy to our disease? What might we try to cover over our badness? What might we try to do to try to satisfy our sense of longing? Let's just state it this way. Other remedies will not do it. Food will not heal you. Your spouse was not created to heal you. Lusting for others and giving in to that lust will not heal you. Being told you are right will not heal you. Being better than someone else will not heal you. All substitutes when not enjoyed through Jesus Christ will only further sicken you because you're feeding your own performance. You're feeding the animal. It makes you sicker. There is only one remedy. Friends, let me tell you, if you have to have surgery, you do not want me to do it. Okay? I should get a lot of amens on that. I'm squeamish when I see a lot of blood at times. And I have zero skills when it comes to cutting people open. Okay? Woo, glory. I don't need to do that. Not any person will do to be your surgeon. And not any remedy will do, no matter how good it feels in the moment. No other remedy will do but the one, Jesus Christ. And friends, when you've seen Him, when like the kings and like the nations, when you see what you haven't seen, when you hear what you haven't heard heard before, all of a sudden, you realize, why look anywhere else? He is enough. I'm not qualified. Christ is. You're not qualified. 
Christ is. Jesus is my only hope. And at this moment, what is meant to erupt from the pages by the reader is, Christ, I'm all in for you because you are my only hope. I am diseased. I've tried to fix myself. I can't. I stay diseased. You sent your only son to suffer in my place, disfigured as he is, deserving of all glory. And his answer to my disease was not the punishment I deserve. I should spend an eternity in hell. That is the punishment I deserve. And verse 4 says, instead of that punishment, I will cure you through my wounds. Shocking. Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne, put up on his shoulders our diseases. He has made himself diseased is another way to translate that. For our sin-sick soul disease, he has made himself diseased. Now you have to ask, why does he use this disease language here rather than the sin language of iniquity or transgression? He uses the disease language because he wants to be crystal clear that his death on the cross doesn't just conquer our unrighteous actions. It conquers all the ripple effects that those unrighteous actions produce in our world. That one day his death will not just conquer our unrighteous actions, but it will fix the broken universe that we find ourselves in. It will put an end to all evil, all diseases, both physical and spiritual. That his death is bigger than just changing our behavior. It is changing the universe. It is creating a new heavens and a new earth. He bore our diseases. He carried our sorrows. And it's by his wounds we are healed. And this is why in Matthew 8, when it says, Matthew 8 verse 16, it says, In the evening... The many who were oppressed by demons were brought to him, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. I don't know if you've ever asked, why did Jesus bring healing to the table when he was living his earthly ministry? It says in Matthew 18, or Matthew 8, verse 17, that this was to fulfill Isaiah 53, verse 4. That he bore our sorrows, that he was able to put on our diseases because he can conquer disease through his death. So what did he do? He allowed the kingdom of God to break through in certain moments and bring healing to people. And he still does that today to show that his death has not only been able to make unrighteous people righteous, but his death can also bring his kingdom down to earth. He can heal. He can make new but we still long for that day when everything will be made new and death will be no more. Friends, what is the cure? What did he do in order to cure us? And we're just going to run through the list as we look at this. There's seven things and I'm just going to speak them. Number one, through his wounds, you see in verse four, he took our pain. He took our pain, our griefs and our sorrows you going through pain, Jesus says, I am with you. I understand your pain and I will never leave you while you're in it. Have you ever been sick before? And when you're sick, I've heard this many times out of my own mouth or out of the mouths of others. I just wish my wife were here. Or, Where's my mama? 
I want her. Why, why, do those kind of, why does that kind of language come out? Or my spouse were here. Why does that kind of language come out? Because they know you. They know what foods you like. You need somebody to be strong for you when you're weak. They're going to help you with your treatment plan. They know what you like to watch. They know what surprises you like to have, what you like to read. When you're sick, you want that person who knows you to be with you. And this is exactly what God is doing. He is saying, I put my son through all of this so that you might know at every turn in your life, no matter how jagged it is, that God knows you. And he knows your pain. And he's with you in it. By his wounds, he took our pain. Number two, it's through his wounds, he also took our punishment. Look at verse five. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He took our punishment. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We should have received the punishment and he took it upon himself. Number three, in his wounds, he took our sin. Look at verse 10 of chapter 53. It says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. His heart was an offering for sin. He gave his life as a sacrificial lamb for our sin. The price is paid. He took it on. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that in him we then might find and be the righteousness of God in Christ. That was 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 that I quoted. In his wounds, he took our sin. Number four, his wounds were the taking on of God's wrath. He took on God's wrath. This passage, although really clear about our diseased nature and how he had to do that because of our sin, he's really clear as to who ultimately is calling these shots. Look at verse 4. Smitten by God and afflicted. Look at verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He put him to grief. God could not be God and overlook sin. And God's name was at stake in letting his people go without having a cure. And so God intentionally took his only son. Think about the one you love the most. And know that he slaughtered his only son for you and me. You wouldn't do that for me. Even if you liked me. These are people who are against God. We're against Him. We're betrayers. We're despisers. We don't esteem Him. We want nothing to do with Him. And His answer? I'm going to kill my son for you. What greater love could ever be known? It just, for those who've been in the church, this is where you have to pinch yourself and slap your face. Because you and I take this way too casually. We need to wake up, wake up fresh every morning with this sense that God did that for me and I didn't deserve it. 
We need his love to just be fanned into flame in our own hearts. His response to our sin was that he would take on God's wrath. And for people who would forsake him, instead of forsaking them, he went against his own son so that he might never forsake his people. Number five, headed towards wounds, he refused to be defensive. Look at verse Seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. (laughs) How many of you this week wish you wouldn't have opened up your mouth? There's virtue, isn't there? The holding of the tongue. (laughs) What massive self-control. And many times... We're just upset because we're not fully guilty. We're only partially guilty. And we want the person to know we're not fully guilty. We're just partially guilty. Jesus had no guilt at all. Zero. Zero. He had no cancer cells in his body at all. And yet he took all the punishment of all the cancer. Figuratively speaking, he took on the chemo, the fatigue, the throwing up, the agony. He took it on. And yet he was without sin. And when they were slaughtering him, he said not a word. This is when our gut is checked and we realize the approval of that person we want to defend ourselves in front of is not as important as the approval of our Savior. And he was the one who held his tongue all the way to the cross. Number six, facing wounds. He lived perfectly for us. Perfectly for us. Look at the end of verse nine. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He never lied. He never showed unholy aggression. He was perfect in every way. He was the only one because of this cure He is the only one who is qualified to take the disease of our hearts and heal us. He's the only one. And friends, all of these things I just described as the cure, you have to understand something. These happened 700 years. This prophecy happened 700 years before Jesus ever came on the scene. Prophecy after prophecy that was fulfilled from this passage. The Bible says he would be silent. He was silent. The Bible said he would be treated like a lamb. He was treated like a lamb for the slaughter. The Bible says that he would be treated to a wicked man's death and yet given a rich man's grave. Do you see that in verse 9? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. It was the rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, that took Jesus' body and buried him in a tomb. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy fulfilled. And here's one that'll get you. The resurrection is even here in this passage. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. That is, after his soul has paid the price, he will see his offspring. He will see the children that have been healed from his death. How does a dead man see? Because he's been made alive. 
The passage says, and he will prolong his days. His days will prosper. This is to take us back to the very beginning. What God sets out to do with the servant, it will happen. He will prosper. He'll live. And he'll live forever. Prophecy after prophecy. You can't claim a lack of power. You can't claim a lack of love. And so by these wounds right here, by these seven things, it's by His wounds He heals us. And when He heals us, the last point, which is just a reading of a list, the healing takes effect. The healer gets the glory. And what happens? Look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of His soul He shall see and be satisfied. God is finally satisfied. The punishment has been paid and the debt has been paid and so God is satisfied as a just king is number two what's the second thing that is the healing process it's by his knowledge the righteous one my servant will make many to be accounted righteous not everyone will believe it's the story of Abraham where he says it's by faith you will be made righteous the call for us right now is taking us to the beginning depart from our sin Trust in Christ and walk with Him. He's walking with you. And by trusting in Him, although you are unrighteous in your actions, you are healed. And you are made righteous. The weight is no longer yours to bear. Christ is walking alongside you. And then in verse 12, it says, Therefore I will divide with Him the portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong. It's a picture of the victory is won. It's the battle is over. I'm disseminating all of my healing gifts to all of my people. I'm giving them the fruit of my sacrifice. They're made righteous. They're made strong. They're given hope. They're given desires. And their lives, their time will be used to bring healing to many others. This not only describes your condition, it defines your purpose. You are healed by faith alone. And you are told that by God's grace, He will walk alongside you, before you and behind you, so that you will be used as an instrument of healing in the lives of so many who are walking around diseased and not knowing it. And we have the good news to bring to them that because of Christ's death, you too can be healed. Let's pray. Father, I ask that in this moment You would grip us by Your grace. For those who battle with self-condemnation, may they not see the disease as much as they see the deliverer. May they see the healer. The healer who promises to be with them. May they see the healer who sacrifices His life for them. The healer who disfigured His life for them. The healer who promises to constantly work healing in their lives. Lord, I pray. I pray for the fearful. I pray for the anxious. That God, we would be able to see that You orchestrated all of this for our good. And if You can do the hardest thing, crushing Your own Son for sinners, then You can do the easiest thing, and that is giving us everything that we need. So God, you will provide for us. I pray that in this moment, by your Spirit, you conquer fear. 
Lord, I ask for those around who feel like there is no hope over certain sins in their life, there is no hope that they would believe that by the death of Jesus, they were made righteous. So hopeless is not an option anymore. We are healed. We are made righteous. And we can depart from sin and captivity and run with Christ in health. Father, I pray for those who are struggling with compassion towards a spouse or towards a neighbor. I pray that you would help them to see your compassion towards them undeserved so that we can give our heart, our love, our compassion to even those that we might label as undeserving. God, I pray. I pray that we would not be timid to give this good news away. But that we would be struck with such awe. Such a picture of your glory. That you would use us, I pray, to reach many in this city and to the ends of the earth. With your great glorious gospel. Lord, I love you. And now in this Lord's Supper time, have your way in Jesus' name. Amen.